Hello, I'm your host, Olivia Braffman, and welcome to If She Can, I Can, the podcast that aims to edge us ambitious women that little bit closer to figuring out how to navigate both the fulfilling career and the family we desire. And well, challenge is the role we're supposed to play in it all. Each week, I'm going to be talking to the inspiring women who, in their own special way, have done just that. Let's get into it. This episode, I'm joined by Claire Chillingworth, a graduate from the prestigious University of Cambridge, before pursuing and becoming a high-powered lawyer. She has worked her way up to senior associate over the past nine years, currently at the international firm CMS, specializing in real estate law. What is truly fascinating about Claire is that she chose to enter motherhood as a single parent using a sperm donor. As a result, Claire currently has a gorgeous one-year-old daughter and is soon to be returning to work from her maternity leave, so lots to get into. Claire, thank you so much for coming on here and deciding to share your story. It's so nice to have you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. So I wanted to start with a little bit about your upbringing I guess so what was life like for you growing up and was law always the direction that you were headed in so no it 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 absolutely wasn't actually so I am one of four siblings so we had a very lively household uh, lots of coming and going lots of arguing, but lots of love. And I think particularly now, lots of love. I think when we were younger, there was probably more arguing. But now between me and my siblings, we're all very, very close. And I think probably this, this, now I say it, links to the arguing. But I did have a lot of people saying to me when I was younger that I should be a lawyer. Maybe because they were saying that, I don't know. But I was always saying, no, 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 no. That's not what I want to do. No, absolutely not. And... So when I went to university, well, when I did my A-levels, I had no no plans on being a lawyer. When I went to university, no plans on being a lawyer. I studied philosophy, which does actually lead quite well into law, but that's not why I did it. But then as I was coming up to graduating, I thought, oh gosh, I've got to do something. I should probably start thinking about jobs now. I've, I've had enough fun at university. And I was originally thinking about management consultancy, but even now I'm not really sure what that is so I think it's quite clear that wasn't the right career path for me and I just thought oh I'll just have a have a look at law I guess at Cambridge there was lots of lawyers um, around me but I did a bit of work experience which I absolutely loved I did a little taster week of the law conversion course which again I absolutely loved so I was quite lucky just to fall into it at the end of university and I worked as a paralegal then for about seven months went traveling for a little bit and then started my training contract so it all fell into place quite quickly luckily for me because I had no other plans and you didn't have close family or friends that were lawyers growing up so you didn't have that influence it was sort of all born from a natural trajectory of what happened sort of post university my my aunt is a lawyer and so she was helpful in terms of giving advice on getting into the profession what it's like and i did know a few lawyers like one of my good friends sisters got me my work experience so i was actually in in a position where i had good 
advisors and some good first-hand information on being a lawyer. So no, I wouldn't say I, I got into it cold. I had, a, I had a few people to call on. So I'm always fascinated where people end up in their careers. There are certain careers that you seem to choose at a young age being sort of just post-university, sometimes even pre-university and pursue for decades to come and others that chop and change and morph into various different things. And, you know, I speak to people that have 10 different careers over a 20 year period because they've not necessarily followed one path. So I'm always fascinated with people that follow one path. What has been the thing that influenced them to follow that path? Because it's probably more rare. These days, yeah, I agree. And I think there's a lot to be said for not doing that. I think collecting as many experiences and working as, with as many people as you can has absolutely got so much to be said for it. So, um, so yeah, in a way, I'd quite like to have done that, but there we are. <laughs> and I guess, wild assumption, but in my head, being a complete non-lawyer and, and not, not knowing very much about it at all, my assumption is it, it's pretty competitive as, a, as an industry to get into the big firms it's got a reputation for being somewhat tough, long hours, hard work, male dominated as an industry. Please correct me and keep me honest. What is your experience entering that world initially as a young woman? So I think all those things are true. When I was pursuing my training contract, I intentionally didn't apply to the biggest, biggest firm. So the, there's a group of firms called Magic Circle and that's four or five. I can't can't remember how many of it is. And they, they pay the most. They have the most uh, prestige, but they also have a reputation for hard working lawyers, the hardest, especially junior lawyers. So I, I shied away from those and I went for more of a mid-range firm, which was friendlier, definitely a friendlier firm, definitely more balanced in ways but I think it's still I still worked incredibly hard to be honest too hard for the first I don't know maybe five six years of my career late nights were just commonplace we all just did them and because everyone in the team is doing them it becomes normalized and it did become a a very difficult atmosphere to work in and I I had to step back from it after a while because it's just it wasn't good for me and it wasn't good for my personal life so I think it's absolutely true that it's it's incredibly hard working some people thrive in that environment and some people manage to do that for years but it just wasn't for me and I think more and more people in the millennial generations and younger are stepping back from that working model and saying actually no I think there's a better way of doing this it is also male dominated in a way so at the more junior end I think there are more female lawyers and then as you get up the tree there are less and less so in my team there are six or eight partners and they're all middle-aged white men There are no women, which I think, given that at the junior end, you have more than 50% women entering the profession to this, that clearly indicates a male-dominated profession in my mind. And why is that? So why do you have all these women entering that profession and not not getting... And for anyone that doesn't know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but partner is the sort of top 
position that you can hold at a firm yeah so partners are top and there's a lot of them so there's a hierarchy within the partners so there are junior partners and then there's the there's management management at the top but that's when you step out of being a just being a lawyer and step into managing the business as well and the people as well as being a lawyer so why does it happen I mean we could talk for a long time on that but I think the profession is quite cautious and regressive. So it doesn't like to take steps to accommodate the things that working women, particularly mothers, really need. So the flexible working, working around childcare, maybe acknowledging that work, that being on your phone 24-7 is not the be all and end all for being for being a successful lawyer so that puts a lot of women off from progressing in the in their careers to start with and then the partnership model how you get into being a partnership then I think magnifies that because you are expected to work in the way that these men work and some women do do that and they do it very very well but I think a lot of women just go, do you know what? I just can't see how that would work for me. I want to see my children or I want to not run myself ragged at both ends of the, both both parts of my life. If I think the partners see that you're perhaps not in the same model as they are, they assume that you will not be able to cope with partnership or that you won't want partnership. So then they then put up these, whether conscious or not, blockades to their to women pursuing partnership and personally I think it's an it is a huge mistake because I've seen so many talented women and actually just take taking away from my personal experience if you have 50% plus women entering the junior workforce junior lawyer workforce they will there will be like tons and tons and tons of really talented lawyers who could be brilliant for your partnership. They'll bring a new perspective. They'll bring a new way of working. They'll bring new skills. And that talent is just untapped. And as someone who is now having to think about these things, it makes me lose respect for managers who don't see that. So just to put it bluntly, it's a problem. And I guess working hard is it's difficult to quantify because everyone's got a different barometer of what working hard looks like. But what, and pre-deciding to have a child, of course, what did your average week look like? What kind of hours were we talking, late nights you mentioned, weekends? Oh, it was nuts. Yeah, absolutely crazy. So this was probably, this changed when my my firm merged with another firm, which changed the working practices. But pre-merger, we were, I say we because this was the majority of my department and probably the majority of the firm. We were working 12 to 15 hour days on a regular, plus not every weekend, but a lot of weekends. I would say that there was also some time wasting in the office because I think we were a close group. And when you have a close group, that brings really nice and beneficial things like chatting, supporting each other, sharing ideas, that kind of stuff. When things were busy, which was a lot of the time, I'd say a lot of those 12, 15 hours, the majority of that was working time. In the, and it was in the office then, so there wasn't, there wasn't really any home working, so it was spent in the office. And then I guess you get into a culture of no one wants to be the first to leave. So then you sort of, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of everyone staying 
late and getting more work done because that's just sort of the accepted part of the culture and no one wants particularly when you're a junior you just want to fit in and I imagine that does have a big impact on everyone's personal lives if you're spending that much time in the office you're socializing less you're going out less you're meeting less people there there must be an impact relationships suffer personally socially whatever it might be was that was that your experience Absolutely. Yeah. So there was, I think there were people who were in relationships and it was quite clearly causing a huge strain on those relationships. So I think that that was absolutely the case. And then if you're not in a relationship, how do you meet somebody? Maybe you don't want to meet somebody. That's, you know, that's fine. But if you do want to meet somebody, how do you meet somebody when you're in the office all those hours, unless you meet somebody at work and that's, maybe works maybe makes your life even more difficult so (laughs) yeah it's incredibly tough for you when you were sort of forging your career and working way up and figuring out where do I want to get to out of interest what are the values that were most important to you going through that experience so was it certain earning potential reaching a certain position being part of a certain working environment what was the thing that was driving you or most important to you? So I think, I don't think it was hugely healthy, but I think I was and still am, but not to the same extent, a people pleaser. So I just wanted to do really, really well. I wanted to do my work well and I wanted to get approval from clients, from the people I was working for. And that was a, I'd say that was probably my main driver. And I was, I am ambitious and I was back then, was I ambitious? I don't know. I think back then I was just more just caught up in the day-to-day wanting to do really well. And I kind of, I think I probably thought the progression will then happen naturally from that. So yeah, I would say it's that. And I think that probably comes back down to having such a pressurized education. I think all that feeds into me just wanting to it wasn't that I wanted to be the best it was that I wanted to have be acknowledged as having done a good job which as I say I still want that but it's definitely not the be all and end all I think that's so common though it's seeking constant validation and reassurance that you're doing well particularly growing up in the vulnerable years when you're trying to figure it out and you're not quite sure and the most liberating thing is getting to the point where you don't seek external validation but you can seek it internally but that's so difficult I'm certainly not there but it's the dream I'm keen I'm keen to get into your journey of having a child where did the journey start how did it first come about why did it first come about so so my friends obviously I'm 36 so my friends have been having children for a while and when my friends started having children I think it was just so much off their radar that oh sorry off my radar that I was like oh these children are really cute but definitely didn't even occur to me that it would be something not that it was something that I wouldn't want in the future but it was something that I wanted the time but as time went on and more of my friends had children I started to get closer to them and I started to just think about children in a different way and I started to um, clarify that oh yeah I think this is something that I will will want and I was I was single I've been single for probably seven years maybe I've had relationships between them but nothing that was that looked like it was going to become a relationship where I would have children so I started to get close to these children and then my niece 
Lily, my first niece, was born in March 2018 and... She is an utter delight and I think I just fell in love with her from a very, very early stage. I absolutely adore her. So I think that probably flicked a biological clock switch in me. So when she was born, I had thought of the idea of having a child on my own before then, but I think it was more like, oh, maybe I'll do this. This could be a potential path. It was much more of a a soft background idea. And then she was born. And I remember my mum said to me, oh, maybe you could have a child on your own. And that's how I know I had already thought of it because it wasn't new to me when my mum said that to me. So that was 2018. And then in 2019, I had a couple of months off work. And that's when I started thinking about it properly. I remember in January 2019, I was just, I was relaxing. I had my dog and I was just chilling. And I thought, actually, I I feel like a child could fit into this picture. Maybe I should start thinking about this seriously. So then over the first half of 2019, 2019 yes I I was I I actually started researching it I started talking to some clinics and thinking about how much money I would need and it then gained momentum from there I think I I just thought right okay I'm going to do this and it seemed like a very obvious path by this point because I think I saw a thought at that time it was like okay I can either look for someone to do this with which takes the control away from me really because I didn't know if I was going to find somebody if it was going to work out if they would want children how long it would take or I can do this other way where I can control it to an extent and I don't need to rely on anyone else and I can do this now and which firstly means I can have children around the same time as my friends my my sister and secondly I can then take the pressure off seeking a relationship in the future because what I really didn't want to do was rush into a relationship that maybe wouldn't actually be the right relationship for me just for the, just in order to have a child I absolutely didn't want to do that I wanted to make have my life look how I wanted and then seek the right person at the right time So many people listening to this will resonate because I think we have to normalize that this is an option for women. You don't need to A, be in a relationship. You don't need to stay in an unhappy one, certainly. Just for the sake of having a child, you have options. I think that's so important. Completely. I completely agree. And that's why I wanted to be on this podcast. When I started this journey, something I decided was that I was going to be very open about it. And I wanted people to know this is what I was doing. And I wanted people to know that I'd be willing to talk about it because the more people see this happening, the more it will then happen. If you know what I mean? Like if if someone would like to have children and they're in the wrong relationship or they're not in a relationship and they see someone else do it, it plants that seed. And like you say, it gives it gives people options or at least options to consider. And I've seen people stay in relationships which seem from the outside anyway to be making them unhappy because they are scared that they won't be able to have a child otherwise what does the process look like so for the naive of us that are listening to this how long does it take what is the process you mentioned you know having enough money how expensive and accessible is is it 
So it is expensive. I think that's unavoidable. I think there are a few local authorities who will fund single women going through IVF, which I didn't go through IVF. I'll go through my route in a minute. So it's you can, in some situations, do this on the NHS, but I think you have to have done a certain amount of fertility treatment out privately before you can access that NHS. So basically, it's it's expensive and you can't get away from that. I'll mention how much, roughly how much I spent at the end when I've spoken about my, my route. So what the process looked like for me was I chose a fertility clinic, which I felt was the right fit. There's lots of them. They have various different price points, different values different setup so I found the one that was right for me and my fertility consultant who I was going to be working with and you have a load of tests like you have blood tests to see what your egg reserves look like you have a a procedure called a hycosy where they put dye in your womb and your fallopian tubes to check there's no blockages all of this kind of stuff basically this is so they can firstly make sure there's no issues that need to be dealt with and also make sure they are choosing the right treatment for you because there's various different options which involve different ways of getting you pregnant all of this kind of stuff so mine was very straightforward I didn't have any issues that's not true actually I have polycystic ovaries so which means I have lots of eggs but perhaps not the best quality but it wasn't too much of a challenge for my fertility treatment basically we went to the most straightforward option which is called IUI interuterine insemination which is basically where they time your ovulation and then they will put the sperm into your womb when you ovulate and it's just basically a procedural way of mimicking yeah what happens when you have sex because you may or may not time your ovulation but basically the man is putting his sperm into your womb and the egg gets fertilized it's it's the same as that just without the sex So we went down that route for me. The other route is IVF, which is where they give you some hormones. So you produce lots of eggs and then they collect them and then they fertilize the egg outside of your womb and then put it back in. It's more likely to work IVF, but it is more intrusive and more expensive. The other part to it was obviously picking the sperm, my sperm donor, which lots of people are super interested in that so I'll talk about that for a minute it's quite a strange thing to do so there are sperm banks and they all have their donors online or their profiles online so it's a little bit like a dating website in that you get a page which sets out information about these men who have donated their sperm and then you pick one so it is quite strange but you just you just do it. I think everyone finds a different way of working out what they want. So my, my sperm donor was from a Danish sperm bank where I think donating sperm seems to be more normalised in Denmark. I don't know if it's Scandinavia in general or if it's specifically Denmark, but it seems to be more normalised than it is in the UK where there's a much smaller pool of people to pick from whereas I found there was just tons on the Danish websites so I went with them at first I found it quite hard it was it felt like a huge amount of pressure it felt more like I was picking something for my future child rather than myself and that felt quite difficult how do you pick the right person for them which is sort of it it does make sense 
but it also is a bit silly because that becomes part of them. So you're not picking something for them because that must be there for them to be them. So it's all very strange. But what I was looking for in the end was somebody who sounded like a kind person, basically. There's a lot of information on the Danish sperm donor websites. You get health information for obvious reasons. You get their the results of their test. They get tested for various conditions and that kind of thing. So check check that off. That's an obvious, you would look for that. And then you get a blurb from the clinic. The clinic writes what they their impression is of this man who's come in. So they'll say, oh, he's very confident or he's very kind or he always stops to chat to us or he bought us, you know, their impression, which I found that very helpful because that's it shows what they may be like if you met them, which I think is helps to come up with an impression of how you might see them if you met them. And then you get a emotional intelligence questionnaire and then you also get this very long questionnaire, which has all kinds of things in it, which is like, what's your favourite food? What's your favourite animal? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What's your favourite memory? All kinds of things. You've got that. And then you've also got a little handwritten blurb of why they're doing this. So there's ton, basically there's tons of information. And there's a picture of them as a child, which is nice. There's so much there that I kind of was looking for something which said this is a kind this is a kind person because that's just what's important to me is kindness. So that's that's what I tried to find for my sperm donor, which I did find. It's so fascinating. So you pick your you pick your sperm donor, it works for you first time, you get you manage to get pregnant. Right. So aside from the sperm donor, so I picked my sperm donor got ready for my IUI and they put the sperm into me for the first time. I did get pregnant, but I then miscarried at about nine weeks. So that was very tough for obvious reasons. Because of what they do when you're when you've had the fertility treatment, they'll give you, well at least with me, they gave me progesterone supplements. And what that does is that stops you miscarrying. So the idea is if if your body is just a bit prone to miscarrying. It's It will stop you doing that and stop you having a miscarriage of a healthy embryo. But what it did for me was the opposite. So I was on the progesterone. It stopped me miscarrying naturally. So I, I was I would go, f- I was pregnant, go for a scan, have the scan, and they'd be like, mm, it's, it's a bit small. Next scan, mm, it's not grown that much. It's not looking great, but it might be okay. So I had about three of these scans, which were, it was torturous, to be honest, because I knew that it wasn't going to go well. But you can't let go because you're like, well, I've got a scan in two weeks. Maybe it will be OK or maybe it won't. It was hideous. So in the end, it was like, OK, this is definitely not a viable pregnancy. I had a miscarriage. Then second go was not successful. Third go, I had a miscarriage again, but it was a much earlier one. It was a five five weeks. So what they call that a chemical pregnancy because it's a chemical pregnancy. I think if the miscarriage is too early to be identified on a scan. So it's so funny because three, three, it's basically three months having sex three times. It's not much, but it felt like such a long time and it felt so intense that after that third time, I was like, right, I'm just going to do this one more time. And then I'm going to have a break, take stock, work out what I do 
do I go to IVF? Do I keep going down this IUI route? Which is what I was saying about IVF being cheap, being more expensive. Actually, for me, IUI was more expensive because I did it multiple times. I think I spelt, spent probably about fifteen to 20000 in total, which is a lot. And that includes the cost of the sperm, which is, to be honest, absolutely outrageously expensive. So that is that was probably about half of the cost. It's not all on the fertility treatment. So I thought I'll just give it one more go. But happily, that fourth go that I just that worked, that was Holly. And here we are. Here you are. And it sounds like you've got an incredibly supportive family. What was the reaction that you got from friends, work, general society? I've never had a negative reaction which I'm quite fortunate I think because I think some people do but I think with my family we all love babies more the merrier yay this is the way we get another and and, you know another cousin for the for my nieces a grandchild for my mum and dad and so everyone was just very happy and everyone was like yeah you should definitely do this I think you should do this now you know when I said oh I'm thinking of this it's like yep get on with it yeah <laughs> let's have another baby so family were very supportive friends were the same I think everyone was just everyone was just really excited and really positive I've had a lot of people say that they find it admirable and they find it brave which is really nice to hear because I feel like it was, it was a brave step to take just because not many people do it and it's a bit daunting and then were similarly people I work with as in my my managers, they know that they can't say, oh, I'm not sure this is a good idea. So they sort of have to be supportive. But they it was genuine, I think. I've worked with them for nine years, like you were saying at the start. So they do know me. So I think they were genuinely happy for me as people that I was doing something that would make me happy. Well, I'm pleased to hear that because I think that's always the fear is that you're doing something for yourself it's deeply personal and it should be a really positive thing that people celebrate and it is brave and it is admirable because I don't think enough people probably do it that that are thinking about it so it's it's brilliant to hear that you've had nothing but support from the the people around you I've I've got my um I, I'm ready for someone to say like oh I'm not sure about this I think a, a child needs a mum and a dad type thing but so far I haven't haven't had to <laughs> haven't had to go into battle with them what would what would be your what would be your rebuttal to that? I, I'm ready to say something along the lines of I think it's better to have one loving parent than someone who's maybe a bit judgmental. Exactly. And how thinking, I guess, along those lines of having having one parent, you've been you're on maternity leave. I think you've been on maternity leave for about fourteen months. So moving into sort of transitioning back into work, how have you found the early days, weeks, months of single parenting? with a very young baby and the general transition into to motherhood. For the first half of my pregnancy was absolutely dominated by anxiety because I'd had my couple of losses beforehand. So I was so, so anxious. But once I got past that stage, I think basically I, I said to myself right after 21 weeks, I had, I'd had midwives, I'd had doctors, people saying, you, you are fine. This is almost certainly going to be fine. Please try and enjoy it. So... I was I worked at that and eventually got to that place and from about 21 weeks onwards I absolutely loved it. I felt fantastic pregnant. I was very lucky and balancing that with work 
was hard because work was very busy at that time, but it was okay. It was all manageable. I think because probably because I was in such a fortunate position of having a very easy pregnancy that I could manage both. But because work had been so busy, when I got to maternity leave, I was not prepared. I hadn't bought, I think I'd just bought a pram and had nothing else or something. So as soon as I went on maternity leave at 37 weeks, I was like, oh my God, I have so much to do. So work was very quickly shoved to the back of my mind because I had so much else to focus on. And then Holly came along, which was clearly a very all-encompassing change of pace and it was fantastic and wonderful and brilliant. But my goodness, it was crazy. Like, it was like totally wild. The, for the first, I don't know, 10 weeks maybe, it's, I was just like, what is going on? I well, didn't necessarily always feel like what is going on. But looking back, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I was, I was all over the place. <laughs> so I was very lucky to, to be living with my mum. So I had who's retired. So she was there all of the time to support me. And so I didn't, I wasn't ever, I don't feel like I can genuinely say I had a single mum experience because actually I had more than most people have. Because if you, if you have a partner and they get, go back to work after two weeks or three weeks, you're on your own. Whereas I was never on my own. I had my sister down the road. She was, I think she was also on maternity leave at that point. My mum was there, as I said. So I was very very well supported that's so important you you need it it takes a village so however you however you build that village and whoever is involved is is not so much the point absolutely and I think that's actually that has been lost a bit in our society mothers in particular are expected to do everything alone there's no appreciation of how important it is to have your network as you say whoever that might be to help you out luckily luckily I had mine so so yeah so then I was fully into motherhood like looking back on that first year now it was truly amazing and magic but so intense so so intense and again I didn't really see it at the time like people say oh you you don't feel like you or your your identity is gone when you're a mother at the time I remember thinking no I feel totally like me like I feel completely like normal like me but going through this crazy experience but looking back I can see now that I was going through a huge transition and now I feel like I'm emerging from it into this new identity where I am my old self but I'm also a new completely new new self me as a mum me as a working mum I couldn't appreciate at the time well I I want to talk about that so what's going on in your head when it comes to planning because I guess as a single parent giving up work isn't an option for you you have to go back because financially this child is solely dependent on your income so how how did you go about planning and thinking about how that was gonna manifest so I had a lot of conversations with work when I was pregnant and during my maternity leave about how it was going to work and I've I said to them from the start work is very aside from the need for financial security work is still very important to me I like my job I want to do well at my job I want to progress in my job so this isn't this step I'm taking in my personal life isn't going to change that I mean obviously it's going to have impacts but it's it's not going to change that I take pride in my work and I enjoy it. 
so that was the message I wanted them to have from early on. And then in maternity leave, it was more about the practicalities, like how actually it was going to work. Because even though I wasn't working before maternity leave in the crazy way I was describing earlier on the podcast, there is, there is always an expectation that you'll be on call, you'll be on your emails or whatever. And if you need to join a call at six, seven, you probably can make it work. And so the conversation was about, okay, I'm not, I'm actually not going to be able to do that now. I will have to pick up my daughter at 4.30. I'm not going to be on my phone when I'm with her because I'm only going to see her for such a short time a day. I don't want to be only half present. I think that sends the wrong message to her. So we had a load of conversations about this and they've been very supportive. So the structure we have in place is that I'm going to work 8.30 to 4.30. Plus I will have to work outside those hours at times in the evening when Holly's gone to bed but I have also discussed with them how I can't see that that will that it will work if it's every night because I will just burn out I feel like I I know where my boundaries are because I worked so hard when I was a junior lawyer that now I know okay working 24 hours a day which it would be either with with the combination of work and Holly isn't going to work so they've been very supportive and they get that I'm only going to be in the office one or two days a week. The rest of it will be from home. Fridays, I'm not working at all. I'm going to be with Holly. So we've got a structure. We're all happy with it. We're both, as in my my work, and I are both invested in making it work. So it's going to be challenging. But I feel like what we've come up with is a is a good starting point. Yeah. And I think it's so important to be honest. It's They don't know what to do. You have to drive that. You have to drive that. And I wonder what your what's your feeling around, do you think this will impact your future career progression? Or do you even care? Do, do you know, has your ambition level changed as a result? It's a good question. And I don't know, to be honest. I think sometimes I think where I want to get to is just to be comfortable financially for Holly and me. And so that's the goal. I don't really care about progressing any further than that. That's what I think sometimes. And sometimes I think, why? Why do I think that? Like, actually, I would, to be honest, I would make a brilliant partner. I know this. Why don't I push myself and do that? But then on the other hand, I say I'd be good at it. I would. But there's lots of aspects of being a partner which really don't appeal to me. Like business development's really not my thing. So do I actually want to do that aside from anything? about being a mum do I is it actually a role that I want so I don't know it's all a big mix of things plus there's what I was speaking about earlier in the partnership the way partners work at the moment is not very progressive so I would have to battle for a way of working that they that would work for me and I'd may have to make them see that it works and in a way that's I wish I I was like right I'm, I'm totally in for this role because somebody needs to do it but I don't know if it's going to be me at this stage. I, I just don't know. I think because of because I'm in this uh, about to take the big step back into work, I don't know how it's going to look. Maybe ask me in a year. <laughs> well, I would be interested too because I think that's such a fascinating thing. And you're right. It takes someone... We can all just accept things are the way they are or it takes someone to try and change it to then pave the way for other women to follow suit. And it's the same in every every career at one point way back when was male dominated because women pretty much didn't work at one point 
And so it's a really interesting thing. And I agree with you, you know, baby steps, go back to work first, see how it works, see how you feel before you're sort of charging this path. But I find it so fascinating. It's, you know, the stat is that 85% of women believe that prioritizing their family over work is the number one barrier to their career progressing. And yet there's no difference in how men and women value their career or on ambition levels. So if that's level playing field, but 85% of women are sort of held back because of this, it's sort of what do we have to do then to allow more women to advance if they want to? Absolutely. Yeah, I know. And what I feel like is happening is there's an assumption now from the people I work for that I won't want to progress. I won't want to be a partner. I feel like I'll be starting from a, a, a point of having to change their minds about, oh, no, actually, this is right for me. Thanks for making the decision. But actually, <laughs> I can think for myself. And then ha- how is it going to work? What, ha- you know, how can we make this work for me? I, going back to what I was saying earlier on, it just it does make me quite annoyed that they just can't see that the way it works in law at the moment is hostile to women. And I have had the, I have actually said this to the partners I work with. And to be honest, they're not receptive. They cannot see it. I think what they hear is me saying you're sexist. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the system, the system doesn't work for women as it is. And so the system is sexist. I'm not calling you sexist person I'm having a conversation with. Yeah. And I think that that's a message which they they struggle to hear. And I and I imagine, you know, the data doesn't lie. What you're seeing, feeling is probably accurate along along with the data. So it's it's a fascinating discussion. And that's why we're sort of having this discussion is well, what does need to change? What does need to happen in order to allow women to progress to the next level? And in your case, you don't have a choice. You know, there's no giving up on your career. Your career is incredibly important. A to support Holly financially but probably also to be an incredible role model to her growing up in terms of what you've been able to achieve I know we're coming to the end which I'm so sad about what is your advice or message to those women who might be considering going down a similar path to what you went through and or to people who might have preconceived opinions so I would say planning is very important I think talk to as many people as possible who've done it and as you meet one and as you find one you'll find others because it's uh, the kind of thing where you want to build a network of people who are in the same position as you so it's very unlikely that one person won't give you a, 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 um, a way to get the perspective of lots of other people so then you can learn more about it, learn about the costs, learn about the challenges, learn about people's experiences. You can get the good and the bad. And there is absolutely, there's there's so much good to doing it this way. Your relationship with your child is so special and you don't have to negotiate with someone else on in terms of how you're going to parent, that kind of thing. There's lots and lots of benefits. There's challenges obviously the financials there's not having someone else you can just say do you know what I I just need 10 minutes can you please hold the baby actually well I probably if it was a partner you don't even need to say please hold the baby just say here's your baby I'm going over here for a second you don't have that person but you find other ways it's fine learning about all these all the the practical so there's the process there's actually what's it like to be a single mum 
learn about all of that, then you can start to put your own plan together. You can start to budget. You can start to think, oh, okay, so what kind of, where would I, where, what kind of environment should I be living? What kind of conversations do I need to have with my work? What's my maternity leave package? All of that stuff. So thinking about that as early as possible, I think is, will make it easier for you and will, would make it easier for someone and would also make it more real because it will show you that it is possible and there are means of doing it and the other thing I would say is look at your if you have friends who have children who are in relationships see what life is like for them because one of the something which was helpful for me in making this decision was I'd seen lots of people have children and they were all in heterosexual relationships and some of their partners were fantastic, really completely involved with their children, supported the mother, all of that great stuff. They weren't all, and some of them I could see, to be honest, were making the mother's life harder. They were not supportive, they weren't present, they didn't understand the struggles of the mother, they didn't appreciate the labor not giving birth but like the um the labor that the unpaid labor that a mother puts in in the household all this kind of stuff and actually I just thought okay there's a spectrum of partners and some of them are great some of them aren't some of them are in the middle most of them probably are in the middle being a single mother you are on the same scale and you're better off than some if you don't have a, if you don't have a supportive partner you're better off so actually it really is it can be a very similar experience so it's not like having a partner equals life is easier sometimes having a partner equals life is harder i think that's such a brilliant message to to go away with for all the people that are considering how they might want to go on that journey one thing is how they go on the journey to have the child. The other thing is what does that mean about their work? There is clearly a lot of planning that has to go into it, more so probably on your part than than in others. There's just more to consider. But generally, it's such an empowering thing to hear you speak about this. It is incredibly brave. And ultimately, you're going back to work next week and we're all behind you in going back to work successfully and killing it in your career and... And charging the path ultimately that you want, whether that's partner or not, but the one that feels most fitting for you to allow you to thrive professionally and personally. And I think that's the most important thing that we can really ask for. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, as I say, um, ask me again in, in a year and who knows what it will look like. <laughs> who knows? Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Claire, for speaking today and... I'll take you up on that. I'll speak to you in 12 months' time. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to leave me a quick review and subscribe. It helps us reach a bigger audience of women more than you know. And if there is an awesome individual who needs to share their story on this podcast, I would love to hear from you. My details are in the description below. I will see you next week. <laughs>